Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. I think it's really important when we've been through something so painful or transformative to remember this version, like whether it's a softer version or a bigger version or a tired version, grief is exhausting. There's one teaching that's been really helpful to me personally. And then a lot of my clients when they're grieving that with the sleep and the exhaustion piece is that in lots of wisdom traditions, they talk about the dream world and dream state being, you know, Carl Jung talked about it too, like the little sparkles, the little like breadcrumbs that we can follow, like the symbols and the signs of the inner life. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Pleasance Saliki. Pleasance is the founder of Thrive, a digital self-care class, and Lola, an academy for women's leadership, among other things. She's an Ayurvedic lifestyle coach and a holistic health coach. She's the author of Delight, Eight Principles for Living with Joy and Ease. Now, she's taught mindfulness, stress management, and self-care in academic, corporate, and private settings. A mutual friend introduced Pleasance to me as a death doula, someone who supports people going through death, dying, and grief. Now, as most of our listeners know, my brother died in 2021, and the sudden unexpected loss sort of rocked the world for his wife and kids. It totally crushed my parents and it completely changed the direction of my own life. And I remember immediately after he died, looking for podcasts and books and things to help me learn how to process this loss and the, and the shock of loss can happen to any of us at any time. And I want to talk to Pleasance about how we deal with massive, heartbreaking, unrelenting loss while the world moves on around us as if nothing has changed. Mm. So my hope is that this episode can be that for someone who really needs it today. Pleasance, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm so happy to be here talking about death and grief and loss is one of the great mysteries of life and connectors and I think about this all the time. It's the one thing we all have in common that we're all going to die and everyone we love is going to die and everything we love is going to die. And that blow even every day talking as a death educator, working in grief, working in spirituality, it's still I am in awe of that. Yeah. Just real quick, where do you call home? Where, where are you calling in from? I live in Washington DC. I just want to say I've been here for almost 30 years and watching the different phases of our country, of the sort of heart, we've been through so much as a country, as a world, as a city. And grief, this feels important to say, micro grief like spirals with macro grief. And when we learn how to grieve as a collective too, it can help us in our intimate, personal grief as well. Right. So oh, like yeah. the city of DC, we've been through so many layers of change and transformation, heartbreak, ways of being dying and new ways of being born and feeling really discombobulated in ways energetically in the city. And so 
everywhere that we, you know, I just feel like we're sort of like this hotbed or this ground zero for the changes that we've really been going through as a country. It's, and it's I do spiritual to, work. <laughs> yeah, it's easy for me to forget how those things are interrelated. You know, you see how they're interrelated before you sort of get smacked in the face. And then when you get smacked in the face, you don't identify with the interrelation anymore because you're just dealing with the... So I gave you a very brief intro and I read your bio and I sort of picked and chose. So what did I miss that you think it's important to share? Because you, you started a lot of things, you found a lot of things, you do a lot of things. So what else should I have included in there? I think just in general, I'm a creative person, a creative, a creatrix is what I say now, much more on the spectrum of Jewish embodied, earth-based, spiritual, feminist leadership. I'm going to be ordained, goddess willing, in a year, in which case I can really put all of the pieces of the weaving of teaching and facilitating and holding and caring into a little bit more of a container, I think, that people understand the program I'm doing is in a direct relationship with rabbinical school. It's a, a different version of that, shall we say. So I would say anything that's within that world of care, community, collective. And lately, I've really been saying that I'm sort of a life coach turned death educator, that mm. all of the life coach work I've been doing for 20 plus years through yoga and Ayurveda and holistic health practices with all ages, really, at the end of the day, death is our teacher. <laughs> yeah. So go right to that. You've done the research. You've gone into it a lot. Tell, talk to us about death and culture. What is it that we do right? What is it we do wrong? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what other cultures might do things better? And what do they do mm -hmm. better? That's a lot. But, you know. So many. <laughs> like, oh, so <laughs> many questions. We could write a whole book together on this. Yeah. Okay. So I want to name that I'm an expert on my own life and experience. Not right. anybody else's. And I read an obsessive amount, a ridiculous amount, like three or four books a week for many years now. So I'm passionate and a lover of learning and studying and sharing wisdom traditions that have helped humans for all of time. So in ancient cultures and traditions, many of them, grief in community is just part of the village. You'd have, oh, it makes me emotional to think about it because in my lineage, we have something called the Mekonenet, which is the mourning woman. And when you would gather collectively to grieve when someone transitioned, there would be a person in the community whose role would be to wail and mourn publicly, giving the other community members permission to feel like I have the chills now, right? Like feel it move through. The Somes, Maladoma, and Sabumfu, who are both transitioned now, write and teach about this so much in the African tradition, in their tradition, about a healthy society has a healthy embodied grief ritual. So without naming like who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong, it's not about that. It's like, just look at a funeral. There's a lot of like rigid, I don't want to cry. I don't want to feel anything. And there is also emotion expressed. And in my experience, I often seen it, see it kind of isolated or segmented. Even think about, I think visually of grief rituals as always in circles and spirals. And that's really different than like pews and lines, right? It's like collectively we can share and hold grief together and kind of exchange it like towards the fire or towards the center of the circle. But because we've removed so much of that, now we're trying to hold it together ourselves. Yep. So I want to go really at the beginning here, I want to go sort of granular. You know, I've been working with people for like 25 years in financial services. And so, yeah. you know, I work on their money. So I, I get to hear all kinds of family dynamics and I know when people yeah. die and I know when people lose a sibling or when somebody loses a parent or I'm involved in these conversations. And I'm, I've always like mm -hmm. been supportive and, present and kind, but looking back, I'm not sure I did it right. So when we meet somebody that says, Hey, yeah, you know, this person who I love died. What do you do? Like, how do you handle that? I've had the experience recently, especially the past five years of having this happen personally and intimately. And my language around it is really, I'm just sitting with you in this. I'm not mm -hmm. afraid of your big feelings. 
you can have them with me. I'm just sitting here in the field of the pain. That's a 25 plus year spiritual meditation, yoga. I did Zen Buddhas. I've done, I did like every spiritual tradition looking for my, like, I would say like, are you my mother? Are you my mother? You know, I kept going, like jumping from thing to thing and weaving them all together. At the end of the day, if you clear out all the noise and all the books or the rigidity, the essence is, can I sit here in this discomfort? And we do these subtle things like, do you need a tissue? What support do you need? And you have recently been through this. So when someone says to you, what do you need? Are you always able to answer? Do you know? Yeah, it's so funny because in in the early days, the thing that shocked me, I had both experiences. You know, I experienced how bad everyone was at like offering condolences. And at the same time, I experienced not knowing how to say this is what would really be good for me. Like I had no idea which is why you go for those podcasts and those books. And- yeah. yeah. And I'd say that to give you some context, I was heavily influenced by my grandmother and she transitioned on solstice. So I've mm-hmm. just recently been through this myself with the a very important person. And when people would check in with me, I would just say, I don't know, period. You know, there's this whole like, emotional codependency micro that happens in our culture when people are not well or like uncomfortable or going through something. And so I would say things like this hurts so bad and then just leave it, like let it breathe because it felt really, it feel I'm still in it as you are. Like it feels really important just to be really honest. It really hurts and I don't know what I need. Thank you for being here with me. You know, if that feels authentic. So I really think there's not a script. It's so much about, one of my teachers always says, when we're talking about death, grief, elevating humanity at any level, race work, justice work, we're talking about doing the inner work enough to kind of carve out your own language, your own voice, you know? So turning towards someone, slowing down. So I've done a lot of work around trauma resolution Because everything I study is so intersected with the nervous system and the pace of life and stress and trauma that impacts all of us. And Thich Nhat Hanh used to always say, like, the way that you show love is presence. Yep. So I just sit there. I hold a hand, be quiet. And I'm mindful of the silence after the burial, after the everyone has shown up. And so I'm yep. mindful in my relationships to circle back a few weeks later, a few months later, a few years later. I tell you that the one thing that, and I tell the story all the time now, because, you know, people had a hard time. You know, what do I say? You know, David was Jonathan's best friend, that kind of thing. But one person, and I don't know where she got this. She sent me, just texted me once. She was out walking her dog and her dog ran across a, a plant that was in the shape of a heart. And mm-hmm. she took a photo. And she texted it to me. And then two days later, you know, the dog was out there and they found, you know, a kid had written on the sidewalk the word love. She took a photo of it. She sent it to me. And like a day later, there's another one. Two days later, another one. I got one yesterday, 14 months later. Yeah. So powerful. And that's being present. Yeah. 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 That's that connection that we long for, (laughs) you know. For sure. I also think the phrase, no need to reply is very powerful. I do have a very strong desire to care give and be maternal and loving and caring. You know, that's why I think lots of us who get into teaching and leading and sharing do. And because I'm aware of that, when someone, I have a friend right now whose father's going through hospice. And so I'm thinking of her every morning in my prayer practice, in my spirit practice. And I will send her a heart, a cloud, a leaf and say, I love you and I'm thinking of you. No need to reply. Yep. So she doesn't have to bear the weight of what she's going through and then also deal with, you know, emotionally managing me or responding. It's like, no, I'm not doing this because I want to hear back from you. And that's felt really powerful. That's felt like a gift to my friends and family who are grieving. Yeah. The two things that I think that I'm pulling out so far is if you know somebody that's, you know, in your proximate, you can visit with them. You just, just to go and sit and say, I'm here, whatever, you know, I'm just, 
the duration. And there's a couple people that came and said, hey, let's go for a walk and we go for a walk. And then we'd call back next week. Hey, let's go for another walk. And we just go for a walk. And sometimes I would, you know, wail and cry and have problems. And sometimes we talk about something else and whatever we talked about was just fine, but they were there. Whatever I needed, they were there. And that was huge. And then the second piece is no need to reply. You know, I'm just, I'm thinking about you. You're far away from me. I know you're going through stuff. Without saying that, you know, I might say a picture of a heart or a cloud or a leaf, you know, I'm here. I love you. You know, I'm thinking about you. No need to reply. I think that's just, I think that's really beautiful. And I think it's something that's really important early on. The struggle, and not you know this, it's been 14, 15 months now. It, I thought it would get easier more quickly. That, so just to be, I mean, so the tears don't come as often. They don't come as quickly, right? But it still grabs you. And it's still, when it grabs you, you it doesn't let go of you, right? And there's a few things that keep coming up. And I just, I wanted to kind of just go through these three or four or five things and just see what the teachings are or what you think of the things. One of them, and this is, it almost needs a narrative. I was driven. Like I was the guy that got up at literally four in the morning. I meditated. I read. I wrote. I worked out. I cooled off. I got my shower in before my kids got up so I could give them a hug and a squeeze and either drive them to school or whatever. You know, I was present. I was there. I was healthy. I was awesome. Like I, everything was, you know, on all cylinders. I'm just tired. I don't have the drive. Yeah. I'm not interested as much. Yeah. Like I can't get out of bed sometimes and I'm finding comfort in ice cream and alcohol in a way I never did. Right. And that's <laughs> we're 14 months later. And that's, yes. I know that those are not good, but I can't get around the corner on yeah. it. What's the why? I mean, I love this question. I love thinking about this. I love writing about this. I love going for long walks and talking about this. It changes us. It's like that whole idea of like when women have babies and they're like, oh, I'll get my body back. Like, how can you get your body back? There's been like human spirits that have moved through you. Like you are forever changed. There is no back. We're not going back before COVID. We can't do that. And grief is like that. Death is like that. It, you are different. You are transformed cellular in a cellular level from this loss. And now your mission is... What needs to change? Who am I now? How do I sit with myself? This is huge. How do I love myself through the grief when I'm not that productive person? When I'm not that healthy, firing on all cylinders? Is there still self-compassion for this version of me? A little rougher, a little less grindy. And that's a really important part of like real deep self-acceptance is loving the parts that love the ice cream and the alcohol alongside the 430 good wake up meditators. Because the truth is, it's all life. It's all whatever you believe, divine, whatever the word is, whatever the texture is for this amazing thing where the mystery we're all experiencing is. One of my teachers always says, like, it's not about the person we're grieving. They're good. It's about, like, who are we now? Right. What is our soul curriculum now or our spirit path now or our work path now? Or like, what are those lessons? And it takes time. As you know, you're already experiencing it. And it's so wavy. This is also important. So much of what we like think about and talk about in spirituality is in cycles and spirals. It's not linear. And so... You can't, there's like an old rabbinic tale that like you go from house to house and try to find someone who has, there's someone grieving and he goes to the rabbi, says like, this hurts so bad, you know? And the rabbi says, okay, go out into the village and go house to house and find someone who hasn't experienced this and then bring them back to me. And he can't because this circular spiral waves of starting here, you know, in meditation, how they always say like, start here, start again, start now. Like Sharon Salzberg always says, start again. (laughs) Like we start again. That's it. And like, I think it's really important when we've been through something so painful or transformative to remember this version, like whether it's a softer version or a bigger version or a tired version, grief is exhausting. There's one teaching that's been really helpful to me personally. And then a lot of my clients when they're grieving that with the sleep and the exhaustion piece is that in lots of wisdom traditions, they talk about 
the dream world and dream state being, you know, Carl Jung talked about it too, like the little sparkles, the little like breadcrumbs that we can follow, like Mm. the symbols and the signs of the inner life. And so when we're so exhausted with grief and we're sleeping or we're napping or we're resting, are we able to allow ourselves to listen, maybe your brother's wisdom, maybe his words, maybe his energy spirit, you know, it doesn't need to be like a visitation per se. That's not what I'm talking about. But just even a connection to a different realm, a different operating system that might be really comforting. Like I have a client, he says, every time he takes a nap, his partner who died comes to visit him. And when he wakes up, he feels so good, like comforted and loving. And then he like clicks on to like, what just happened? I'm crazy. No one's going to believe me, you know, kind of more the critical brain. And so I said, well, let's like put the critical brain kind of to the side. How do you feel when you wake up? And he said, just so much love. And I'm like, well, that's one of the gifts of all these naps that you're experiencing is just that love that you're touching. And because so much of productivity, like Western mind and business world and go get it and that whole linear culture and climbing culture more, more, more like I think these are the experiences that knock us off that mountain and make us realize Mm -hmm. there is more here. There is so much more here. I mean, it's really striking because I knew that. Like I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, my grad work is in Buddhist studies. Mm -hmm. Like I've also been a searcher my whole life. Mm -hmm. I've been meditating 25 years, right? So I knew that. And I still drove and ground and, you know, did the 430 thing and I still did it. And it still knocked me off my, just completely, completely knocked me off my, whatever, my path. This is probably two months ago. I was at a, I went to a Buddhist meditation retreat with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. And a woman I met there, she's a doctor, her husband, also a meditator. She wasn't a meditator, but her husband's a meditator, went through COVID and ended up committing suicide. And so she was coming to the practice, trying to find what did he see in this? What happened? And that we had this deep conversation about how come when I need it the most, my practice, it didn't fail me. Maybe I failed it, but it, I couldn't sit anymore. I couldn't sit so I could walk and ended up doing a ton of walking meditation and, and that, but I could not rely on those old forms of meditation that I had. And maybe it's just like you're saying, you know, I'm a different person cellularly. I can't do the things I once could do. Have you seen that before in other people? Yes. And what I want to encourage you to do is like open your mind to see that instead of it being that it's not that your practice didn't serve you. I seeing it. This is your practice. Right. It's all all the This being like continuing to go into it, being open about it, wanting to share the humanity, our spiritual practices It's a misnomer that they're elevate us away from being human. You can meditate all you want and you're still human. So I see this as a gift of your practice. I see this as the fruits and the rewards where you can actually be in your body and grieve and cry. You're not frozen. And maybe you have times of it that you are, but, or that you want to numb, but naming the alcohol, naming the ice cream those are the healthy human parts that we can't meditate out of us or do up dog, down dog away from. And so that's, I really want to appreciate and just honor your practice and you for being so open about all of it. Because I think the suffering aspect of humanity, you can't meditate away. And they always say the amount of grief and tears often energetically matches the deep love, the amount of emotion that we feel about our beloved dead. I just feel my grandmother pulsating through me, crying about her walking the streets. And because we're animals, walking is the therapy, the healing path, and it keeps you in the world. I would be much more concerned if you said, I'm good. I just, I went back to Zen or I, you know, I was able to just sit. That would be of concern because you're in a transformative death transforms us. And when we have these really intimate, tragic losses, 
it's such a celebration of the love to feel the body, the sensualness of tears, of water, of the element of water and transformation is essential. And to not feel that would not, would be completely disengaged from being embodied. And I really feel like we just need so much more embodiment in the world. What about the, and I, this is not just me. I hear this all the time. It's been, I'm going to, I will admit that I have had this thought. And so I now worry that other people have this thought about me. Mm -hmm. The thought is, you know, somebody's parents are 85, 90 years old and they pass (laughs) and it's very sad. And there's no question it's sad and it's totally expected. And, but two years later, they're still sad. And I have had the thought and I am, I hate myself for having the thought, but the thought is, wow, I mean, shouldn't you be past this by now? And now having gone through it myself, I now am worried. I'm worried about that judgment. Like it's been 14 months and there's some people that I know get it. And some people are really close and they're very supportive and they'll be there to the end. And yet the world looks around me, just keeps going forward. It keeps going on and on like nothing's happened. And it just blows me away. And I'm just wondering, are these people, do they not remember? Do they not know that my brother's gone? I just want to give space around the truth of what you're sharing. And Stephen Jenkinson wrote a book called Die Wise. And he's been talking about the death trade for a long time. And he talks about our sick culture. And he talks about how we're in a conundrum right now because we're starting to have awareness that this isn't working, but we're nowhere near (laughs) caring for each other and caring for our dead and holding grief with reverence as life and using grief as a no bullshit filter for our lives. And I can pretty much guarantee that you're never going to think somebody should, you're not, I don't think you are going to in this lifetime put a time limit on anyone else's grief anymore. And that when you actually experience the depth of grief in this way, micro with friendships, businesses, kids stages, like those are ways we can actually practice grieving in real life because grief is around us always We get a chance to practice it that's not so intense as our beloved family members and friends who are transitioning from this earth. We then have an opportunity to have that slower pace, that compassionate ear and lens, and it will transform you as it already has and how you view that. And so you may have some friendships or you may have some critical judges in your life who used to mirror where your thoughts maybe mirrored each other. And that was really good at that time. Those might be some of the relationships that don't continue past this grief. You might long for people who can hold this for the next, however many breaths you have days you have. Yeah. It was for me. And it had, so Dave died at, the end of COVID, yeah, you know, that's not really over, but towards the tail end of the worst of it. And so the two years leading up to his dying, my circle of people that I spent time with and talked to literally dwindled to my immediate family and him. Mm. <laughs> and so for me, it's been a, I have to develop new relationships now because I, I yes. had one friend, I had one friend, yeah. he's gone. Yeah. So now what? And yeah. the beautiful part of that is there's been a two or three friends that have come up that have just been like amazing that hold it. And I'm learning about things about them that I didn't know about their losses, about their pains. And that has gotten us even closer. So there's, I think you're right. I think it, there's some people that leave and they leave for good reason. And there's some people that arrive and they arrive for a good reason. Right. Also something that's been really interesting, the more I've oriented my life and turned more towards death work and I lead death cafes and the living eulogy <clears throat> class. And I just love talking about death as a way to honor my life. Like, that's just, that's it. Like, death is my only teacher these days. So a lot of those other identities are fading. A lot of the other, like, revenue streams I had are fading. I'm just really orienting towards, like, this is really, I wonder what this will be. And it's like, I'm following this, like, curious road. There are people in my life who cannot talk about it, deal with it, who don't get what I'm doing, who are like, why would you do this? This is so sad. I'm like, I feel invigorated by being honest about grief. It has transformed every plant in my neighborhood. Every tree is alive to me. 
and, and I touch them and feel them every single day. I'm not going anywhere fancy. I've been home since my grandmother died. I made a choice to grieve at home and stay home, canceled all my plans, said, I need to be here and do this. And everything has been popping and popping while I'm walking and crying and reading and napping and feeling her in all of these other ways, hearts on the ground and all the heart leaves are little winks and nods from her. And there are people in my life who are like, it's just, I can't even be near you because what you want to talk about and how you are living is so uncomfortable for me and my stuff. And one of the things I've grown into in the past, I would say a few years is like, oh, it's not personal. That's okay. Everything has a beginning, a middle and an end. I love you. I bless you. There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you. We're just not vibing anymore, whatever it is. Okay. And then I might cry or journal or write them a letter, right, in my journal so I can experience the loss. But I honor the difficulty and the pain that can be in the body when you, you know, a lot of people in your neighborhood and stuff might see you and it just brings up their own mortality. So they have to turn and walk away or that happens a lot with people. I think that you're well, obviously you've read a lot more about this than I have, but I am envious of, because I was going to ask this question about, I constantly seek reminders. Like I am looking for opportunities to talk about him, tell stories about him, hear stories about him. You know, I go back and this part of me think, God, that's dark. But I go back and I read the eulogy that I wrote and I read the death announcement yes. that I wrote and yes. I, and I replay in my head the trip that my parents and I took to see him before he was cremated, you know? And I talk about with these three guys, right? I talk about what he looked like laying on the table, cold. Like, is that healthy? Because it seems like I want that, but it also seems always to bring up a lot of darkness and a lot of emotion, but I want it. And it's an internal battle to think about it. I think this is kind of back to that Stephen Jenkinson piece of like, we're in a really sick culture and we're trying to figure out where our healthy is within that. And so this is the opportunity I would use. This is kind of like life coaching hat is like define what healthy grief is for you. Like we have to make our own definitions of a good life, grief, death, what we believe, like this is our work to do. Because if you look outside of you, Oftentimes, that's not the best model, <laughs> turning <laughs> away, ignoring. And what I want all of us to look for when we're experiencing this is how do you feel? Like, how do you feel when you talk about him? How do you feel when you remember him? One of the other things that's so beautiful for anyone who's listening, who's doing grief, working with grief, has someone who's dying or died is to say to your beloved, tell me about the person who's dying. Tell me about the person who has transitioned. And in Judaism, we have the annual yard site or anniversary of the beloved dead. We don't celebrate their birthdays. We honor and observe the day of their death. That's what yard site is. And you have a candle and you light it and it, it burns for 26 hours. And that whole day, every time you walk, usually it's in the kitchen. That's where our family puts it. We'd walk by and you just remember the person, remember the person. And one of the things I started doing in the past few years was then when I have a friend who was telling me, oh, this is the anniversary of my mom's day. I said, oh, this is the art day. Tell me about your mom. Every single time people pause, have an emotion of some kind, and then go on and on and on. We want to tell the stories of our beloved dead. We want to remember it's so healthy, I think, in my experience. I don't want to put this on anyone else, but I loved, if I could tell you about my grandmother right now, the rest of my day would be filled with her spirit because she was unbelievable, unbelievable, and still is because she's living through me and through my children. And so I think that's the kind of grief support and friends and human I want to be is where I want to listen to the stories. I don't want to be afraid of them. And I personally just think that's a healthier path for me because I can feel 
things shifting in my body when emotions flow through and afterwards things can be clearer or more in color or more in tune, not in a bullshit, positive psychology, like happiness way, but just the kind of essence, the way my kids smell, the way my dog smells so much stronger, more potent. My senses are turned on because of this deep relationship to grief that I have. And I see it as a gift. And if that makes me like unhealthy, I'm willing to kind of take that label given how I see a lot of others respond. I want to turn yeah. towards people and their stories and their grief, not away. Yeah, you and I've already forgotten I had a moment. What was the phrase you tell me about your beloved or tell me about, you know, that's huge and I would entertain that every day. Such a, so beautiful. One of the things that has come up sort of missing is and this is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than just being tired. It's like directionless, rudderless. It's yeah. like, I don't, there's things that I want to do. And my brother and I had plans, you know, we were going to actually come together and, and work together on something. And that obviously can't happen. But he was also like a sounding board for any idea that I had. And it's like, that's gone. And I, I'm lost. And it's not, I don't think I feel bad about replacing him with a different sounding. I don't think that's what it is. But it's just this sense of being lost, not a loss of him. That's too obvious for this. But there's this, I don't know the direction. I don't know where to turn. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I used to go, okay, I want to do a thing. Hey, Dave, what do you think about this yeah. thing? And he's like, oh, why don't you do this and this? Oh, that's a great idea. I'll do this and this. And now there's, you know, I can ask the question, but there's no answers. It sounds to me like you're learning to stand on your own two feet. <laughs> One of my yoga I'm not teachers, a fan of the whole thing. Yeah, he used to always <laughs> say, do not stand on your head before you stand on your feet. Why are all of you Americans trying to stand on your head? You don't even stand on your feet. That went right to my heart. I really, yep, that's true, right? Everyone is so busy trying to get to that perfect pose or that perfect next plan. And nothing's guaranteed. And this is all a big mystery. So I don't even know why we're trying to do that or not. Like all it leads me to is more questions. And we have a practice in Judaism that I love and has been so helpful in my grief where you just go out for a walk or in a field or somewhere in nature and you just talk to God, goddess, divine, whatever, spirit, the tree, as your beloved, as your best friend. You just bleh, you know, you just let it all out. And sometimes when I do this, I hear her voice say something back to me that she would say to me if I was asking for that. And sometimes it's silent. And sometimes days later, I'll have an impulse or an intuitive hit that I know is a direct relation to that conversation that was had. Yeah, this may transform projects and future. And for those of us who love planning and projects and who are so ambitious, which I think you and I share that, or I'm recovering from that, being in this phase of life of just wandering a little while it has been very uncomfortable. I start when I closed my yoga studio seven years ago without a plan. I just jumped and that was really scary because every other my I mean, I was a classroom teacher. I started a school, started a national conference, opened three yoga studios. I was just like, then I'll do this and then I'll do this and then I'll do this. And when I closed the studio, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I had to let go of knowing what I wanted to do. Mm. And this many years later, it's uncomfortable. And also there's a bit more groundedness in the day-to-day -day listening because I'm not so focused on that next project or big thing to give me motivation. Like, what if your practice, our practice, I'm not saying this like preachy to you. What if our practices just keep bringing us home? Rabbi Steve Letter, his books, The Beauty of What Remains, The 12 Questions. He's done, I think, two or three books about death. And he's always like, what if this is just it? Like, there is no next plan or the mountain. Like, he just always talks about like, in his experience with death, some, you know, you live, he always says like, you die the way you live. So if you've been really intentional and contemplative and conscious and focused on the inner life, death as a teacher will bring you, can bring you a lot of that. 
And if you're distracted and overwhelmed and rushing through life and pretending it's not happening, then that can be a very painful death or grief experience because we're really turning away from, again, this whole idea that death is the only teacher. And without death, what's life's purpose? I mean, these are just the questions I sit in all day, every day and just say, I don't know. Like I'm back at the beginning going, this is all a mystery. I have no idea. I have no clue. But you have a language. You're speaking to it with a language and that in and of itself is helpful. Maybe it's just experience. Maybe it's just reading you know, three or four books a week, but, but that's a language that's helpful. So there's a biggie that I'm sort of, it's not that I'm hesitant, but there's a mm. biggie and it's guilt. It's, I have an incredible life. It's not even fair how good my life is on so many levels. Now it's a coin flip that I get here. I didn't know it was a coin flip before. Like how many accidents have I narrowly avoided? Now it just seems like the outcomes are so random. Whereas before I was like, yeah, you know, you, mm-hmm. you work hard, you get good grades, mm-hmm. you approach the beautiful girl, you ask her out and she says yes or no, but you approach it, right? You just, you put in the work and you get the outcome. That was my belief set. And I, believed it wholeheartedly my entire life. I just feel bad now. Like I feel guilty. Like I didn't pay attention to all the different points of luck or I didn't see, you know, I I attributed too much of the outcome to my own effort. And that's, you know, I should care more. You are like you already are and you will. And that will be as it is. This is one of the areas of in when I was teaching, I was an adjunct professor at American University on race and community over the past five years. So it's been a very incredible time to be teaching undergrads about race in community and working with undergrads. And this idea of a merit-based society is part of institutional racism and white supremacy culture that, believe it or not, we've all been kind of living under in all the ways where there was an idea that if you do this and then this and then this, that this will happen and this will happen and this will happen. And for lots of people, that is true until it's not, because that's not really the larger context. That's not when you take away communal, like the whole idea of individualism as the only path when really our emotions are meant to be shared in the collective. Like it's not just about me and mine and my home or my money, it's about, it's like a much wider network. And that's what all of this spiritual ecology that's kind of coming out a lot out of Buddhism and Judaism also, but the whole idea of mycelium networks and trees and fungi, like we're learning now from the real freaking teachers, like nature and weather. Our emotions are like the weather. And if everybody who, you know, when it's cloudy days, everyone's like, I just feel horrible because the weather. Nine out of 10 times, if I sit down with that person, there's some aspect of their emotional life that they're turning away from because Mm -hmm. we're just mirroring. And that's all my Ayurvedic stuff. Ayurveda is the life teachings that are just direct mirrors of nature, the five elements. And the more that we learn about the five elements in nature, the more we see ourselves in it totally interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so we belong to that wider web. And so I don't think your brother would be cool with you spending your breaths with guilt about all of that. I really see these opportunities from these amazing humans that we're in relationship with to transform that pain into tangible action, especially for those of us who are so motivated and ambitious. Like we get it. Like we turn that fuel, we turn it into something, we transform it. That's the fire element, right? Water and fire are all about transformation. And so I think, you know, for me, the race part and the land part has been so awesome while dismantling like white wellness culture that I was part of with yoga, where bodies looked a certain way and there was a certain level of privilege that was even in the door and as I become more aware to the larger belonging and collective, it impacts how then you are in your own community. And that's what I mean. Yeah, I don't think the way you've been working is probably not going to work anymore. Right. And so how could that eventually, as those grief clouds kind of 
change around you a little bit, not necessarily leave, become more meat of what happens, like the more of the good stuff around how you do want to do work in the future. This whole thing about like, because we don't know in the mystery what happens to the soul or the spirit or whatever people believe in, it doesn't really matter. We just don't know. So we have to kind of say it could be way better. (laughs) So they could be having a great time. It could be worse. It could be nothing. We don't know. And you are in a body and that's miraculous. And that's something we can touch and we can know. And you can have pleasure. And you can have pleasure with your family. You can have pleasure with ice cream, with food, with wine. You can have pleasure in all sorts of interesting, sensual ways. And when you read a lot about the spiritual aspect in wisdom traditions, ancient wisdom traditions, a lot of the spirits say, enjoy the body. Like, that's what you're here for. It's for all of that. And so when you're crying, feel the crying, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just tracks so much with Buddhist philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the guilt well, is like, it's like a letter. I also think like, this is like a coachy thing is, you know, writing letters to guilt, writing letters to jealousy, writing letters to, or writing a letter to you from guilt. That's really powerful to kind of get underneath what's really there underneath. And that's of service to your life. Not the top layer, the guilt or the jealousy or the fear, whatever the kind of top layer thing that's presenting is resentment. You know, when I I don't know if you experienced this, but maybe there were some people who didn't reach out when your brother died. And for me, I got a little like feisty about that. But when I went underneath it, I'm like, it's just because I want them to love me. Like, it's like very basic. Like I want love and I want to be seen and I want appreciation and I'm sad that this person isn't doing that for me. And so I'm, there's a grief. There's an opportunity to be in grief. <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. I had that with a couple of really close friends that didn't, you know, didn't seem to put any effort into it. I was like, wow, that's a surprise, right? Yeah. There's so many other directions to go that the core message of the podcast, and this is kind of a bit of an aside, you know, we're, we're in the middle of the earning season of the Mindful Money podcast, right? And so the idea of this was, what do you do when you're, becoming and doing all the stuff that, you know, setting your goals and da, 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 and then life smacks you. And I've been unlearning the ways I've done it in the past. And you, you've just sort of given me permission to sort of allow that to happen and learn from it. I'm terrified. Like, yeah. cause I don't, I think some of the direction is, I don't know where it's going to go. So yeah. you know, I'm a little yeah. scared of it. I think great things will come out of it, but you know, it's, it's a hard road. And so the primary message, the core message of the Mindful Money podcast is that is that money can't be divorced from the context of life. It has to be within and maybe subservient to, right? And again, I was there, everything's going well, great life. Dave dies, life goes upside down. Can you recommend just an action that or something that people it just happened to them last week? You know, a spouse died, a sibling died, a kid died in their life. A, a, you know, a pet that's been a part of the family for fifteen years just yeah. died, right? After that occurs, what can somebody do to find their center again, stand on their own feet again, or do we just let them lay down and just whatever they need to do, they do? I mean, I, for me, I want to stand back up and I want to get moving forward again in a different format, but what can somebody do to really recapture their life after someone just rips the middle out of it? You're not going to like my answer because it depends because those of us who are too tight may need to become a little bit more loose. Those of us who are too loose may need to become a little more tight. And a perfect example is I have worked full time for myself for 15 years doing all of these wonderful little creative projects and all of these things. And I share that openly because I think it's important to have like meet people in the world who make it and survive and thrive by following curiosities and creating business plans. And I love numbers and I've read your book. I've read all the money books that have mindfulness in them. I've got the whole collection over here. So I'm like very masculine and feminine together. That's like my jam. So in January, my dog did die, who was, who had been, he was 15 And I started hearing this call, like stabilize, look for work, like change something. So I let go of my adjunct position and this organization that I volunteer for posted a job. I said, oh, that looks so interesting. I I was feeling tingles in my whole body and I hadn't felt tingles in weeks. 
because of the dog. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to follow this. Okay, let me apply to this. I'm just following like my note. You know, I'm like a dog. Like what's over here? Oh, and then I'm like, oh, that doesn't smell good. You know, like not the mind, but like the body is following. So I do the interviews in March and April and I get the job and they're like, oh yeah, well, let me wrap up all these projects. I'll start in June. I'll start June 1st. Started June 1st. I love it. It's so fun. It's an amazing, it's doing death work and aging care and memory care. And it's at a wonderful organization up the street and my hours are flexible and I'm in the community with people and I get to talk about being a death doula. I love it. And we buried my grandmother on in the end of June. And on Monday morning, I had to get up and go to work. I had something at the office that day and it was medicine for me. It was exactly what I needed. I had spent, have spent the past 15 plus years having complete freedom and control over my schedule. If my kids are doing something, I can pull back, I can go forward, you know, just being having all of this flexibility. Now, something else you should know about me is I relate most to the Enneagram 4, which is a very deep, big feeling. Like almost every grief person I know, writer I know, we're all fours. Like we just love to be in our feelings. So knowing that and knowing that this, my grandmother, my beloved, my medicine was getting up to go to that office that morning. And that was exactly the balance that I needed because the rest of my life, like I said, I canceled all my other trips. I just carved out space. When people invite me to things, I say, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm taking it day by day. So I would get up and go walk up the street, do a few hours at the office, come home, take care of my puppy, take a nap, cry, grieve. How am I feeling? Oh, I feel like going for a walk. Okay, up. So what people can do is listen to the whole body, not just the mind, not what you think people, the thinking, what other people think you should do is where we get all messed up because we only know what our inner life and our experience and our habits. If If you are someone who has avoided grief and it feels so like you're going to go totally under titrate that get a therapist oh the one of the weeks i was home as my grandmother was dying i called an old therapist who had the backstory i said can we just do a check-in because i just want to see i just want to get your pulse we had to talk she said my girl you're doing great you know so Mm -hmm. having your the check-in support professional support i had other things in my life i just said i can't do that i'm not going to do that so for me making space is really important because I don't want to feel like I have to do anything for anybody else if I don't want to in that day. Like go to somebody's event or something if I had said yes and then blah, blah, blah. There's all that, conf- you know, well, I said yes, but I really don't want to go. And now I'm going to go, you know, all of that nonsense. So I think, th- you know, the tip is like, do you. And if you don't know who you are, that's. Like there's a really big, wonderful invitation to do some of the self-awareness work so that you have a better sense of that lever as you can go and do things or not. I think if you have like kind of crappy boundaries already, this is going to show, it might show up there. So boundary work is really important in terms of being able to say no thank you, period. I think the message there, and I got to say, if you're younger than 25, like learn this now. I'm 50. I'm just figuring out that you're allowed to set your own boundaries and you're allowed to do, and it's too late. And again, it's not too late. Now it's better than 10 years from now. It would have been better to this 10 years ago. But so if you're 25 and you're just listening to this yeah. and you're going through stuff, man, just set your boundaries. Like do figure out what it is you want and go after that. Figure out what you want to do and do that. You know, that's so, it's so critical. So yeah. let's say someone's not actually right now going through it. Yeah. I mean, because this is me. 18 months ago. Right. Didn't see right. it coming, no way to predict. And this is maybe a cultural question we've kind of touched yeah. on. Yeah. Before the shock. Yeah. What can we do to be more able to deal with stuff like this? Ritual, ritual, ritual. Honoring the seasons, honoring, like slowing down enough to be like, this is the first day of high school, or this is the, you know, the last summer vacation, like we have all of these amazing moments in our life. 
usually the pace of life right now, people are just like flying past and they're just missing. They're not pausing to honor. It can just be a word. It can just be one of my teachers, Tayama, she always says, prayer is right pace. What? That's so mind blowingly awesome to me that just slowing down enough to be like, oh, this is something we should honor. And in Judaism, we have Shabbat every week. So every week I get to mark time. So I say, I always invite everybody to celebrate some kind of Shabbat, some kind of sacred rest every week where it's intentional, but marking time, marking sacred occurrences, these amazing things that are happening, these painful things that are happening all around us, pausing to have a ritual. And a ritual can be as simple as like putting your hands on your heart and just saying, thank you. (laughs) You know, thank you house that held us for this vacation. Bless you, you know, and then turning and going home. But obviously I'm thinking in like school years because that's a very classic, typical one. But even seasons, like feeling the season. In Ayurveda, there is grief ritual really at every transition of the season because we are different. The weather's different. We're aging. We're dying. Everything's dying. You know, there's this whole interconnectedness of the sacredness of life. And so I think the one thing to do is to start paying attention to when you might feel the impulse for a ritual. If you don't know that, there's so, this is like very, it's like the, you know how the past five years have been like self-care. It's like next is ritual. I've seen all these ritual books, you know, and grief is right there with it because of COVID. So like, These things are coming up more and more. People are more willing to talk about it. There's so many more resources out there. Thank goddess. I'm so grateful because they're just wonderful texts and conversations and communities online that practice grief and collective grief. Death cafes are great to join. And death cafes are great because when you do them live, you're instructed to eat cake because it's like, you know, ah, we're talking about death. Eat cake. I love that. I mean, one of my websites, I have a lot is called the dancing death doula because for me sitting with death has just inspired a dance practice that I can't, they go hand in hand. And after every collective grief ritual, if you know about sort of like the wisdom traditions, you would have grief, you'd throw your grief into the fire, you'd exchange it, you'd cry, you'd yell, you'd scream, and then you dance. You always huh. dance. And that's that. about the honoring of life. So I kind of, created this identity of the dancing death doula that I just try to live into around balancing that. Cause remember I said, I'm that Enneagram four. So if I'm not, if I don't pay attention to the dancing, I'll continue to just go down the grief, just the darkness. But in that kind mm-hmm. of more balancing act, it's been really powerful and energizing. And, and one last thing on that trust is really important because if you watch yourself through cycles and spirals, like, after my dog died and I was so low and then I all of a sudden was able to kind of move again and walk and then smell new kind of, oh, this is coming and this is coming. I remembered that. So when my grandmother died and I felt so overwhelmed, I was like, oh, I know this feeling and I will come out a little bit more alive and awake, a little bit more embodied. And so that trust of the cycles of it And if this is the first cycle of it, it might be really painful. And I want to honor that. I never want to bypass that. But is it possible to make space for trust of the wider landscape that you will go through other losses, deaths, griefs, all of us, and that when we practice it as a verb, we become more comfortable with the darkness? Yeah, that's, I mean, we don't in our culture we might notice, but then we squash pain and we squash the feeling of loss, you know, from the first time that your girlfriend breaks up with you when you're in middle school, right? That you come home and you're tough. You don't admit that, right? You're just, you're strong and you're strong through that. And, and if you're not, then you're shamed the next day. So it's like, you know, we learn to squash it further. So the idea of the practice of we're going to grieve lots of things and it, you know what, it's a practice. It will get easier and then it'll be a big one and it'll be hard, but so there's, you know, we're almost at time. Yeah. In fact, we're way over time, but that's okay. <laughs> it's totally fun. I've gotten a ton out of this and I'm sure mm-hmm. that there's other people getting stuff out of this as well. So I appreciate it. A couple personal questions. One, what was the last thing you changed your mind about? Oh my 
gosh, I change my mind like every day about everything. Um, That's healthy. <laughs> this be a big thing. <laughs> what did I change my mind about? That there's one way to do any of this. Like there's a, you know, a yoga practice, a yoga teaching that like I hate, like I want to put a big X over now that says like practice and all is coming. And like the guy who said it is like definitely an abuser. And so I'm like, like, no, like that just that there's not like it's not yoga or it's not Buddhism or it's not Zen. Like it's not all of these rigid systems. Like I changed my mind that there's just so many ways to be human. And there's so many ways to do life. And that has, I just feel so free. And when I was in a lot of those systems for so many years, I would not say I I felt really liberated, embodied and liberated. I just kept trying to stand on my head, right? Or sit, stare at the wall or wear all black or take out the, like all of the rules, the too tight made me feel like there was somewhere you had to get to. And if you did this, you could get there. And I have changed my mind that I'm not sure that's true. Huh. That's huge. <laughs> that there may not be a there to get to, like that there might be here. This is it. Yeah, this is it. Interesting. This is it. Is there anything that, you know, you don't talk about much or maybe maybe you talk about it, but people don't remember that you really wish people knew about you? I'm really, really, really sensitive and I see it as a superpower. It's why I love people. And also it's caused a lot of grief because when people I love, I love them so much. And as I shared, I've had people decide not to be in relationship with me on per. you know, it's been clear and they've said that it really guts me. One other thing I think that I haven't really shared that much about, but I'm been writing about it a little bit this summer privately and like now it feels really resonant is when I was in high school I was diagnosed bipolar mm. and I've shared that but I think it was a wrong diagnosis and now we have CPTSD complex PTSD which is childhood developmental trauma that's repeated and I have been studying that like crazy the past year and I'm like oh no that's feels like what I've been living with. And I feel more free and more embodied by identifying with this, not as a label to limit, but as a way to understand relationship, Mm. nervous system, my own patterns. It's very common to be kind of an over caregiver. There's just a lot of those like links. And I'm the type of person who really enjoys identity systems and patterns and frameworks because when I can kind of see, I have, I spent the majority of my life not being able to see myself in the circle and feeling like Mm. I don't belong. And so once I was able to start to be like, oh, Ayurveda, this is this cool system. Oh, Enneagram, this is cool system. Oh, this diagnosis, like, oh, this might be, oh, I belong. And belonging, Mm. feeling like I belong has been more enlightening than Zen Buddhism or yoga, which is like the path to enlightenment. But I think for so many of us living on the planet right now, feeling like we belong is just like medicinal and healing. So you mentioned you have lots of different websites. Is there one that people can go to to find <laughs> yeah. you the best? How do people connect with you? Yeah, littleohm.com, L-I-L-O-M-M.com is like the hub of everything. It's also lolacommunity.com. They go to the same thing. And I answer all my emails like, hi, it's me, right back at you. So I love talking with people if people are grieving. I shared with you that I'm like orienting my life much more towards clergy. So I'm not going to like then sell you a five pack grief. Like I'm just not into the sales. I'm not doing funnels anymore. I'm not doing like big launches. I'm not doing teasers around like, well, if you do this, then I'll do this. I've unsubscribed from that way of being in the world. So I really want to spend my days talking about death and grief and money and sex and sexuality and feminine and masculine and just, the elements like the life stuff like that's what lights me up so i really invite anybody i hope we talk again you know just that's i want to be in these conversations for the rest of my days no more small talk oh i wasn't good at it anyway I'll make sure all that's in the in the show notes. <laughs> I, I say, you know, thanks for being here and coming on. This has been, I mean, you saw it great for me personally. And you know, as we started with, what I'm hoping is that 
this can be something that somebody who's searching right now can find because, and if, if listeners hear it and know someone going through it, yeah, share it with them and they can find a connection to Pleasance. If I can help, I'm happy to help as well. We don't talk about this as much as we should. Yeah. And we're going to put the books you mentioned in the show notes as well. Okay. I read Die Wise. That yeah. was one of the things I came up with. And he's got another one. I don't remember the other one, but fantastic, fantastic stuff. There's so many good resources. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. 